Our psalm this morning is different than the one printed in your bulletin. It's actually Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence. But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Philippians, reading from chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is continuing our series as we look at the Apostle Paul's prayers, prayers on behalf of the church as we consider what does Christian maturity look like? What does it look like to come into the fullness of God's grace as he works it out in our lives? So listen carefully to these verses, Paul's prayer for the Philippian church. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. All right, guys, now that was weak sauce. And uh, I ran a race yesterday and I'm tired. Do not put me to sleep here today, all right? This is the word of the Lord. There we go. I appreciate that. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we do come with thanks for your word. We're grateful for all that you have revealed to us and the shape that Christian maturity is to take. We need you to lead and guide us that we would know more and more of that life. And so we ask that your spirit would teach us and instruct us this morning. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As a young college graduate, I set out to tackle my first major theological work. It was a book by Jonathan Edwards, who is commonly known as America's greatest theologian, to be born on American soil and to work out his theology here. The book was entitled, The End for Which God Created the World. 
It was intimidating and intriguing and somewhat enthralling to read Edwards' work and to get into a major work of theology for me as a, as a young man and someone who was aspiring to enter into ministry. As I trudged through his expansive vocabulary and rather dense arguments, I discovered that the point of the book was rather simple. That Edwards is saying that the chief end for which God created the world was for his glory and praise. And so I'd read many hundreds of pages of dense argumentation to simply arrive at the one thing that I'd learned as a kid in, uh, in being catechized in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man was the first question. And the answer, for all good Presbyterians here uh, who may have grown up in the same rigor, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is what Edwards was contending in a perhaps more academic style. That the purpose of human life, of your life, and of my life is to give glory and honor and praise to God. Now this is written throughout the scriptures. We heard it in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you. May there be glory and honor. This is one of the favorite prayers of the Reformation. And Jesus himself, when he teaches us to pray, in the first petition, he teaches us to say, hallowed be your name, which is, may your name be sanctified, may it be glorified, may it be made great. And we find Paul doing the very same thing here at the close of his prayer for the Corinthians. To the glory and praise of God, he says. He prays for their lives, that those lives would be devoted to the glory and praise of God. And so this idea of living for the glory of God is an extremely scriptural one. It's important in our theological system. And we, what we really need to know is what exactly does that mean? Because I'll confess, after I read Jonathan Edwards' book and read about the glory and the praise of God, there was a very practical question then. What does it mean to be devoted to that? What does it look like? What shape does my life take if I am one who is yielded to the glory of God, how do we do it? And there are, of course, many different answers available out there. But in verse 9, in Paul's prayer, we see something quite unexpected, I believe. Because what we see there is that a life lived to the glory of God is one that increases and abounds in love. This is what it looks like to be devoted to God's glory. Consider again what he says. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Of all the things that Paul could pray, he prays that their love would abound more and more. And he's speaking there of not their love for God, but it has more the horizontal context of their love for one another. Now you have to remember the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians. This was a beloved church that the apostle had started himself, but they had fallen into some trouble and to some tension. There was struggle and there was strife in the congregation. Two ministry leaders who were women in the church, their names were Yodia and Syntyche. Chapter 4, we learn that they're having a conflict. And Paul calls them to agree in the Lord. And this conflict had obviously spilled over into the broader body of the church. And there was now division that was taking place in this small, lovely church that had partnered with Paul for so many years. 
And so, of course, he writes to them. In order to overcome their conflict, he doesn't just simply lead them in conflict resolution skills, but he prays that their love, their love which is grounded in the knowledge of the gospel, would multiply and abound. Because, friends, at the heart of any real conflict resolution, love has to be present. We can resolve conflicts and we can overcome strife, but there may not be true reconciliation unless Christian love is at the base of it. And this is what he wanted to see realized for these two women and for the entire congregation is that their love would increase and abound. And in hearing this prayer, we learn what the goal of the Christian life is. What Christian maturity looks like. That we would become progressively more and more loving people with those who we are gathered together in Christian fellowship. And you see, that is not a decision we get to make about who we want to love or why we want to love someone, but rather we're called to love people inside of a concrete context that God puts us in. And if you want to know who that is, just simply put your head on a swivel. It's the people of Christ's church that God wants you to abound in love for. It's the people in your lives, those who you work with, those who live next to you. It's these people that God wants you to abound more and more in love for. This is what the work of the gospel is, Paul is contending. And so one of the most helpful things for us, though, is to ask what are the biggest obstacles that we face in increasing and abounding in love. In the second half of verse 9, we see that Paul gives us some qualifiers to, to the word love that he adds on to it. And he's explaining that our love is to be suffused with two things. And that we find that these two things that he adds on are also some of our biggest struggles with being loving people. The first of these is that we are to abound in love with knowledge. He says that we're to bound in love with knowledge. Now, this particular word is a technical one that Paul uses at different points in his letters. And when he speaks of knowledge, he's speaking of the true knowledge of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so this is the grace of God that has entered into the world in Jesus to reconcile all things to himself, to overcome sin and death, and to make us right with God. And so he is explaining here that our love is to abound and that love is to be grounded in true knowledge. This is knowing who God is and what he has done for us in Jesus. And so, friends, we don't simply get to define this love for ourselves. We're not left to cultural openness to what this love means. It's not just some warm general sentiment. Rather, this love has a very specific content. And that specific content has been revealed to us in Christ. And Paul in chapter 2 is going to get very specific with the Philippians, in fact, about how that love is to take shape among them. Follow with me in verses 1 through 4 there. He writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so he's calling them to be of one heart and one mind, sharing one common love with each other. And then follow along in verse 3 what he says. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So here he says that the problem is self-interest, and that's what's dividing the fellowship, and they need in humility to relate to one another. But then he grounds all of this moral call to put the interest of others ahead of our own, he then grounds it in a very particular theological truth. Verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, friends, you see that Christian love that we are called to abound in, more and more progressively to grow in, has a very specific definition and is one derived from the knowledge of God that has been revealed in Jesus. And we don't simply get to define it as a warm sentiment. We don't get to define it as a blanket acceptance of others. Rather, this love that we are called to to inhabit in our lives that it is to be shaped by the love of God revealed in Christ, is a self-effacing love that denies self-interest and puts the interest of another ahead of our own. That's the love that we're being called to in knowledge. Now, the great tem- one of the great temptations that we face in the church today, as you may have even heard friends or perhaps even thought it yourself, because it is very attractive. But many will say, well, my church, we emphasize love and being a loving fellowship, and we're not so heavy on theological rigor. And so we're more interested in the horizontal and not in the vertical. And we see just here from the Apostle Paul that he will never allow us to make those distinctions, that we never get to distinguish the horizontal from the vertical, that the love he prays that we abound in is always suffused with knowledge And so the idea of separating theology from ethics, the idea of separating belief from behavior, the idea of separating theological content from practical conduct, it simply doesn't exist in biblical terms. That the two are interwoven and intermarried. They belong together. That theological knowledge informs the way of practical living. And we can't tear these apart that our love is grounded in the knowledge of the gospel. And the second qualification that he gives, and another struggle that we have with this life of love and living to the glory of God, is this love is to be suffused with all discernment. And so this is a tricky word in the original, but what it means is to possess the ability to know the right action in a given situation. All of you each week face many different circumstances and situations. And the love that we have is the ability to know right action in all of those various situations. It's moral perception. It's the ability to figure out what the best thing to do in that moment. And what this means is that love is to be translated. It's not just an idea. It's not just an ideal 
but rather is simply something that is to be translated inside of our actions, that loved by God, we become loving people who do tangible things, who take up action, who inhabit this general orientation to the fellowship around us. And so here it's important for us to point out that the church is not simply to be a lecture hall. That the church also cannot make the mistake of simply prioritizing the vertical and not thinking of the horizontal. While one mistake has been to emphasize the horizontal at the expense of the vertical, another mistake has been to emphasize the vertical without any concern for the horizontal. And that this also is wrong. That the love that Paul prays for is to abound in all discernment. That is that we know what to do is right and especially in relationship to our neighbor that this book of Philippians has a heavy neighborly focus of the Christian fellowship that's been torn apart. And so we must keep these two things bound together, interwoven, always informing each other. Our great theological concerns and study of the depth of the knowledge of the love of God and all that He's done for us in Christ. And then binding that together with what does it mean to be a loving fellowship? What does it mean to live in peace and harmony with the brothers and sisters around me? That these two are never to be separated. And then Paul, as he progresses in his prayer, he's going to go on to say that there are then two results of love abounding in us. That as this love more and more, as as it grows in us, as we progress and it's suffused with knowledge and all discernment, he's then going to speak of two things that emerge in us. The first is that love empowers us to approve what is best. Follow with me in verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent. And that word excellent could be translated various ways, or you could simply say best. And what this means for us on the very practical level, is that each week we do face many different decisions. And the Bible gives us many different general guidelines. But for all of those who've ever navigated a body of water and you've seen channel markers, this is somewhat like the commands of God that we find in Scripture. There is a channel marker that's to guide you in the general right direction. And you have some leeway. There is room on the left and the right to err. You have a broad channel that's present there. But if you go too far to the left, you run aground. If you go too far to the right, you will run aground. And friends, this is like the scriptural commands. And many people each week despair, and they don't know what exactly God wants them to do. But this is where love teaches us discernment. And it empowers us to approve what is best. And the Christian life requires this rigorous engagement where we understand the commands of God and we receive them. And then we look at the situations of our lives and in prayer and reflection and consideration and also in consulting with other Christians, we determine what the best way is. And Paul says that this is one of the fruits of love, that this is what happens. We're able to determine what is best. Now, this will involve many different things, but some good examples of this. How does love help us determine what is best? It's the ability to distinguish Christian virtue from all counterfeits. 
No doubt in the Christian life, there are many ways that we can appear pious, that we can look good in front of others. But when love is dwelling in us, when love has a grip on us, and it's bound together with knowledge and all discernment, it will help us distinguish between what's really fake and what's a show. What is a face that we put on? And what is real virtue? It cuts through. Second thing, it gives us the ability to discern what is best from what is second best. Perhaps some of the most difficult things that you face in life is when you're choosing between two things and they're both relatively good. There is one better that will perhaps be more costly to you on some kind of personal level and will dent your self-interest a bit more and so you can choose the second best. But love enables you to discern and to choose the best over the second best, to pursue that which is excellent. And it's also the ability to see moral pitfalls when they're well disguised. Of course, there are many areas in life where we can be deceived, and we can make choices knowing that it could go the wrong direction. But perhaps we're somewhat fascinated with that. And we know there could be a moral pitfall, but we want to play with the situation just a touch. And friends... This is one of the things Christian love does is it gives us discernment and allows us to see through that. We're proving what is best. This is one of the results of love. Now, the second result that we find here is that love cultivates and produces fruit. Continue to follow along with the prayer in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, this word pure is just simply to mean, it means distinct. It means set apart. That those who have been seized by the love of God and then live in the way of love, they are distinct. And he says they're blameless. That is, they are without stumbling. They don't make others stumble and they can stand with a good conscience in front of God. This isn't what commends you to God. It's not what fixes your relationship with God and overcomes your sins, but rather it's the fruit of a life that has uh, been saved by Jesus. So it doesn't mean perfect. It points to a general trajectory of our lives. And we're filled with that fruit when we walk in the way of love. But Paul says this is the fruit, that love is the chief virtue. And all the other virtues will follow along behind it. As a college student, I was given a book. It was by a man named Jerry Bridges, and it was an exhaustive book. And it was a book about the fruits of the Spirit. And so each week there was a study. And we were to study joy. We were to study thankfulness. We were to study this and, and to study that. And each week we were to try to master each of those fruits. I can promise you that I've never been more discouraged or disheartened in my Christian experience. <laughs> because each week I found myself just completely inept. And I was supposed to master this fruit and then move on the next week from strength to strength to, to knock the other one out. And it's very helpful to see that Paul gives us a chief virtue. A chief virtue of love. And that when we learn to love, and we will always do so imperfectly and partially, but when we walk in the way of love and we're abounding more and more, that all the other fruits of the Spirit will be addressed. 
that we'll find those things being developed because this is the work of the Spirit. And it's why Paul puts such a heavy emphasis on love being the way of the glory and praise of God. And as we receive all this, though, we have to ask the question, where does living a life that abounds in love come from? How do you, how do you possibly gain the resources from it? Some of you may say to me, Chuck, do you know the people in my life? Do you know my children? Do you know the person who sits next to me in congregational communities? My staff may say, do you know my boss? <laughs> there are all kinds of objections that we can put up and we ask, where are we supposed to gain the resources to love people in this radical theological way in which we've been loved by God? How are we supposed to do that? And Paul fills it in for us here in verse 11, where he says, in love will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And so we're filled with fruit, but that fruit comes from the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. And what Paul is explaining here is that we've been given a righteous status from God. We've received a gift that we do not deserve. That God has done something for us. That we have right standing with Him. When we were once in our sins, those sins have been canceled out. And God now calls us righteous. Not because of anything we have done. There is nothing we can do to commend ourselves to God. But rather, through Jesus Christ, in His death and resurrection, our sins are canceled. And we are declared righteous before God. We have this status. And what Paul is arguing here in his prayers that we're filled with fruit, that love is the fruit, and it comes from this righteous status and then proceeds out of our lives. And so, friends, living a loving life, where that comes from is the deep and abiding experience of what it means to be given a righteous gift from God that we never deserved. And that's to the glory and praise of God. That we have received something that we could never merit or earn or deserve for ourselves. And so then we freely give ourselves to the one who has given us everything. Because even the fruit that emerges in our lives of loving deeds comes through Jesus Christ. And friends, that is the key to a loving life. It's not to simply master chapters in a book and overcome them in a week but it is to be mastered by the love of God and what it means for God to be committed to us in Christ. And so let's ask for his help that we abound more and more in love. Let's pray. Father, we, we know our weakness when it comes to this very simple and yet all-encompassing command. And we feel it in the relationships that we bear and that we possess and the struggles that we have to love and we can be overcome but yet we know that you also grant us all the resources we need in Jesus Christ and so we ask that we would learn to love from him and may we walk into life knowing that we have this righteous gift we're safe and secure before you 
And so may we be filled with the fruit of love. Work in us, God, that love will abound. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.